welcome to Non-Native, the podcast that shares conversations between immigrants, expats and interlopers. My name is Sarah and in November 2014, I up sticks from Bristol in the United Kingdom to move to the west coast of the United States. Moving meant leaving behind friends, family and the country I'd lived in my whole life for the promise of new experiences, meeting new people and adapting to a new culture. In Non-Native, I speak with women who have moved around the world in pursuit of love, work, happiness or adventure. Hello and welcome back to Non-Native, the podcast that shares conversations between female immigrants, expats and interlopers. Non-Native took a short break while I was on holiday in Mexico, but we're back for the last episode of season two and what a guest to end with. Sarah is an Australian comedian who I met around eight years ago when we were both working at Glastonbury Festival's on-site radio station, Worthy FM. She moved to London from Melbourne in 2002 and gigs across Europe, appearing on TV, radio, podcasts and at festivals including End of the Road, which she curates the comedy lineup for each year. In this episode, we discuss what it's like moving halfway around the world without a secure job, the romance versus the reality of moving abroad and the mood in London surrounding Brexit. Before you hear from Sarah, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you who have listened, enjoyed, subscribed or rated this podcast, and a big thank you to all the interesting guests I've interviewed this season. If you know someone who would make a great guest, please contact me via my website, which is listed in the show notes below. Season three of Non-Native will be back in autumn. Until then, enjoy listening. Hi Sarah, welcome to Non-Native. Hello, and right back at you, Sarah. It's always weird speaking to another Sarah, don't you think? I know, but we're everywhere. I mean, tweet in now <laughs> if you are a Sarah, because <laughs> I guarantee that's garnered you at least five to ten tweets, maybe 500, who can say? At least half the population. <laughs> so we could be Sarah A and Sarah B, whatever, or just Australian-sounding Sarah, Bristol-sounding Sarah. That could work. Um, so Sarah, Australian Sarah. Hello. You used to live in Melbourne. That's true. But many moons ago, you moved to London. And I was just wondering if you could tell me how you ended up in London. In 2002, was it? Yeah. So when, as we record this, kind of like 17 years ago, and it was summer in the UK, which is like heavy in the winter of Melbourne, um, I had just started doing stand-up in Australia a couple of years before and I worked my way up from the open mic circuit to like mid-level at a club. So what we call it in the industry is a paid 20. So if you have a solid 20-minute set in comedy clubs, you are officially now a professional. You get paid to do – yeah, so I'd worked my way up to that point and I thought – well, I went to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and I befriended a few British comedians and an Irish comedian and they were all like, hey, you should try doing stand-up in the UK. Have you heard of this thing called the Edinburgh Fringe? And I was like, I have vaguely heard of this. And, uh, yeah, so then I organised my life. I packed up everything, took me a few months, and by summertime UK I was I was off and I was moving to London and then travelling up to Edinburgh to do the Fringe Festival and I guess I just never went back. Awesome. And I happened to have um, listened to a radio programme that you shared with me that talks a little bit about your early months 
in London and I know that it was not necessarily what you expected it was going to be and your living situation was slightly different from I think what you had envisaged before you moved out there. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. Well, I think when you're a grown-up and I was in my early 20s, you're kind of like, oh, you know, I've worked for all these years to have this quality of life that I appreciate. And also my profession is where I'm where I I like it and it's, you know, on an ascent, an upwards trajectory. And then all of a sudden you move to this brand new country and you're like, oh, hold on a second. I forgot. I would have to start again from scratch. So the open mic comedy circuit, which means unpaid five minute slots, uh, you know, a lot of traveling, a lot of exhaustion, a lot of late nights, a lot of temping by the day. But also my living arrangements, you have to start again in a way that you don't expect. You think, oh, I'm going to have this little balcony bedroom and have these cool flatmates in London and, oh, my God, no, it's not like that. I didn't really know anyone, so I stayed with a cousin for a couple of months um, and her partner. They were super lovely enough to have me. Then I thought I'd got to stand on my own two feet. So uh, another friend who'd moved over around the same time, we couldn't find an apartment because London's crazy expensive. So we moved into a hostel or a hostel, as I pronounce it, because I am Australian. Um, and that is like I was every cell of my being is against I'm not I'm not a hostel person. I'm not. I'm not. I think I just, no one is yeah. after the age of about 21. It's hard, it's a it's hard living communal living like that. Yes, I mean, there's nothing more communal than a hostel because you're sharing a bedroom, you're sharing a bathroom, you're sharing a kitchen area. Some people share a bed even. <laughs> so that was rough, man. Like I sort of thought I'd have this exciting life. I'd be living in probably I don't know, where had I heard of? Notting Hill, beautiful terraced house. Maybe my flatmate was Hugh Grant, maybe Julia Roberts. I don't know. I'd seen a couple of movies and I was like, yeah, I, I'm on board. But it wasn't to be. You don't start out like that. How long were you in the hostel for? Like a couple of months. Now, because I I wasn't particularly more well off than my friend Sally who was sharing with me, um, but I had like really rigid standards. So I believe I put this on a credit card, not because, yeah, <laughs> again, not because I had more money than Sally. I just was a bit more devil may care at the time with a credit card. Um, I paid a little bit extra than her and I had a private single room. But it didn't mean that life was easier. Like people had worked out how to break in that and come in the middle of the night going, you know, drunk people saying, oh, I thought this was the men's communal room. And you're like, Jesus Christ, get out of my, get out of my bedroom. There were mice. Everything was rancid. It was so gross. So gross. Oh, it sounds tough. It was tough. And like, I still had to share a bathroom and fine, I'm no snob. I've done that in hotels like pensions when you're traveling Europe. Sometimes that's how B&Bs are set up. You'll get a very nice civilized hotel-like experience but just have to share a bathroom with a couple of other travelers. Well, not in a hostel. That is like absolutely minging because um, – because like the water in the shower at the bottom, I mean, firstly, there shouldn't be water in the bottom of the shower, but uh, there was clearly some kind of blockage and it was two inch deep at all time and tepid and milky in colour. <laughs> oh God, that sounds awful. I stayed in stayed in um, some hostels when I was backpacking on my gap year in Australia of all places. But I feel like when you're 18, 19, that's the time. To, to live it up in a hostel because it's gross you know it's gross there's cockroaches but at the same time you're exploring a whole new country so you kind of make do with it and you're only ever staying in one place for a few nights and then you and then you move on 
Well, that's right. But see, you moved on, my friend. You treated the hostel <laughs> as the hostel should be treated. I stayed for two months, which is very long. You shouldn't put roots down in a hostel. Shouldn't put anything down in a hostel. Have you seen those surfaces? So unclean. Um, but Sally and I were both there for at least a couple of months because we were trying to like sign up with temping agencies just to get into some office daytime work so that we could then spend the evenings having dinners, going to pubs, discovering friends, meeting boys, forming a friendship group and ultimately finding a nice actual house that we'd like to live in. But, yeah, like it's weird when you're going for jobs and stuff and you have to give your address as (laughs) a hostel. Hmm. But that was my life. Oh, God. And was Sally a friend that you made when you arrived in London or did you know her from Australia? I knew her from Australia. In fact, from my tiny hometown. So this was like very much a fit out, a fish out of water situation. Um, and I'm still in contact with Sally. She's moved back to Melbourne and she's got a young family now. Um, uh, but she was looking in the corporate finance sector and I was looking in the arts. Um, and both of us found it pretty rough. She was sharing in a four-girl dorm. So, you know, she was like putting on business suits in the morning to go to interviews. <laughs> wow. And so what were you doing for work while you were doing these unpaid comedy gigs? So I had a, a various selection or varied selection of um, office temp jobs, reception, data entry, and then working my way up to PA and then ultimately exec PA, which is a pretty sweet gig if you are a stand-up because – you're booking travel, you're booking corporate lunches, you're getting to go places, you get to have leftover lunches and dinners, booze is given to you. Um, the stationery is of a very high standard. And there's one thing stand-ups need, it is bags and bags of stationery. And I tell you what, I pilfered them. <laughs> <laughs> I pilfered their, their stationery cupboard and I'm not going to be naming them. <laughs> you had me a stationery cupboard. Yeah, I mean, I still have plastic envelopes and sellotape and staplers and stuff from those <laughs> days that I use to this very day in my own shows. That's that's practical. You were just using the resources that were available to you. Absolutely, I was. And so you've been in London for a long time now. Is there anything that you miss about life in Australia or Melbourne? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I suppose you're a Brit who lives in a warm state in a warm country and I'm an Australian that is from a temperate Australian city which is to say Melbourne Australia has long warm summers like 25 degrees Celsius what's that in Fahrenheit oh I still never I have I never converted it's like 80 85 for your American listeners um like we have and some heat waves too where it's hitting 40 degrees Celsius which is I don't know 100 Fahrenheit um it's it's horrific, yeah. Um, but then, so like our spring and autumn, as we call it in Australia, is akin to like a British summer, basically. It's still balmy. It's still really comfortable. You can cycle home in a, a cute cardigan and a dress. You know what I mean? It's not like bitingly cold in our autumns or springs. But then we have distinctive seasons. We get the sort of foliage turning at the end of the season. We get solid winters, a lot of rain, very cold frosts in the mornings, um, tiny bit of snow in the highlands, but not so much in the cities. But I suppose what I miss is a 
I mean, we get distinct seasons in Melbourne, but we still have this incredibly long, warm season. And I miss that. Like, you can't fold it, man. Like, everything's better in the sun, right? 100%. 100%. Even if it's cold outside, it's still there's still blue skies and it's it's crisp but the sun is shining down on you yes. and that really does do something for you i think when we moved here um i i don't want to say that we had like seasonal dis- what is it seasonal affective disorder or yes i believe it's a thing it's yeah so i i don't want to say that we suffered from that but definitely i remember in the uk when the clocks change uh in autumn you just feel sad and you want to stay inside and you're just a little bit more glam and here we re- we really haven't experienced that i haven't experienced that um, and it's been four years now. And it's not to say that I don't get sad when the clocks change, but it's definitely not as severe as what it used to be in the UK. I agree. I agree. And I think everything's better in the sun, you know? Like you take an ordinary dinner with friends and you add sun, all of a sudden it's alfresco dinner. You know, you're outside on a balcony drinking wine. You're, you know, sitting outside a cafe having a brownie and a freshly made cafe latte in the sun. And I feel like that instant radiant heat that hits you when you walk out in the sun where you're like, oh, it's an almost physical thing, Mm. radiant heat, where you're suddenly like lifted, you know, that vitamin D just mood lift. Oh, it's great. So like I suppose, yeah, everything I miss about Australia is like tied into – our way of life, I suppose. So the heat, then really, really good coffee. And we're like ahead of the game in Melbourne of when it comes to food trends. Like I remember like two or three years ago, Saganaki cheese was having a really big moment in Melbourne. And I'm sure if we have any of my, you know, Australian friends or followers or whatever listening, they're going to correct me. They'll be like, actually, I think you're fine. It was seven years ago, Sarah. Like, we're really snobby about our food stuff. Like, you know, smashed avocado that came from Australia and New Zealand. Like, you know, a couple of chili flakes and sourdough bread and a little drizzle of olive oil. All that stuff. Like, but yeah, Saganaki cheese is the next big wave that has not quite yet hit uh, the Is that the one to look UK. out for? Yeah, it's like, if you like halloumi, you're going to love Saganaki. It's another salty squeaky cheese that you barbecue or you grill and you might have it in a burger oh my god it's so good oh my god i love halloumi so i'm already gonna be keeping an eye out for this yeah i'll pretend that i discovered it first in the u.s oh you you may well you may well because it's not hit the uk in a big way yet so i'm kind of like just waiting waiting sarah sarah this could be your your moment i'll be the one that made is it saganaki (laughs) saganaki sounds japanese but it's actually greek like halloumi is greek okay Mm. I'll be the one that brings Saganaki cheese to California. You're welcome, California. Yes, do. You're going to be rich. Rich, I tells you. Well, see, this is it. So like sitting around in cobblestone cute alleyways on an upturned milk crate, sipping a really, really amazing cafe latte, eating a Saganaki burger, people watching, reading a battered old Penguin Classic book in the sun. These are my memories that I treasure from Melbourne that my student life I went to the University of Melbourne and a lot of our tutorials ended up at the pub or ended up in a cafe with our slightly off kilter <laughs> lecturers and tutors who'd be like let's let's talk about this over a glass of wine everybody and the whole tutorial would descend to a cafe or a restaurant um I miss that way of life and I see it a little bit here in the glimpses of summer we have in the UK 
like especially if you live in an area where I live, which is Dalston, which is very kind of uh, people people call it hipster, people call it bohemian. It's a little bit of both. Um, but you see people sort of sat outside cafes or remote working in parks or whatever, like laptops everywhere and um, headphones on or people reading scripts or playing a guitar. It's a pretty friendly kind of place and freelancers love it here. Nice. And you, I think you said that you moved originally to London in the summer. So that must have been the perfect time really to kind of for London to wow you with its charms because the UK in the summertime really is quite special. Absolutely it is. Everything moves outside. There are concerts in the park. There are pop-up markets in, you know, weird industrial districts that are all of a sudden covered in bunting and fairy lights. You're like, yes, please. Why wasn't this beautiful in winter? Well, yeah, everything's grey in winter, I suppose. But, yeah, I think that if anyone was moving to the UK, in particular London, no, this is probably the same for Bristol or Manchester or Birmingham, whatever, You are best to move maybe April, May in spring, fall in love with it, give it a chance. (laughs) Give yourself a chance to fall in love with it before the big cold hits, the big big grey hits, because it's going to take you minimum six months to maybe a year to get set up. If you want every aspect of your life to be as you know it back at home, if you have standards, (laughs) say, for example, in your love life, in your home life, you know, the kind of house you would live in, for example, and in your career, that's four huge things that you need to get right. So you might meet a romantic person, you know, a romantic love interest or whatever very early on, or you might not. You might find a house very early on, or you might not, but you can't, very few people fall on their feet immediately and land all four things. So I reckon you need about six months to get set up. And when the sort of nights start drawing in, Maybe you have a really cool flat chair with some cool fellow artists or whatever. And so you don't mind so much because the fire's on, you're toasting marshmallows, you have a local pub that you love to go to. You know, just get a few of the factors right. Oh, I think you're making me miss England very much right now. <laughs> it was the pub thing, wasn't it? Yeah, cheese board it by was the fire. The, it was mm. the pub and the cheese board and the fire. Yeah, you had me there. And so you've been in London for 17 years now. So there's obviously quite a lot that you like about it. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do? Uh, actually, I can't go home because I'm wanted by the uh, by ASIO, uh, CIA in Australia. <laughs> That's not true. Um, no, you're right. You're dead right. I stay because... I love it here. I put down roots here. Like initially I met an English comedian that I started dating. We were together for like 10 years, didn't work out. In the breakup, he kept Bristol, I kept London. I feel like I win. Um, although, you know, you're from the West Country. I don't want to be too dismissive. Yeah, I was going to say. If I had to choose. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I stayed because I'd built my career here. I'd made too many contacts and had too many projects on the go to just go back and start again in my 30s in Australia can you imagine so I was like no I guess I stay here now do you did you think when you moved this was going to be a forever move or were you just thinking I'm going to go for a couple of years feel out the comedy scene and then move back to Melbourne wow that's a good question I think I've romanticized London so much that I knew I had a two-year work visa Um, And I was like, yep, definitely going to stay for that long. I don't know if I had a longer term view than that. But in my mind, I think I thought I was going to move into that terraced house with Hugh Grant, you know, work in a cute little bookshop, 
basically live out the the narrative to Notting Hill. Um, maybe I did think I was going to stay, but then when I arrived and it wasn't like you know, a Richard Curtis film. <laughs> I suppose I had to rethink. Yeah. I remember telling a British friend, he was like a chef from over here. I met him in Sydney. And I said, he said, oh, where do you think you're going to live when you move to London? And I had this map of the centre of London up on my wall in Melbourne. And I, you know, I'd never been, I was such a nerd, but I was like, one day, one day. And I said to him right there, and I pointed to Soho because this map was huge, but it was the centre of London. So it was Soho and a few areas surrounding Soho. So like Covent Garden, Leicester Square, Piccadilly Circus, Bloomsbury. So that was it. The extent of the map was just there, like which is ostensibly the shopping district. But I didn't know that. I just heard about Soho from like the rock and roll era and Carnaby Street and mods and goths and all this cool punk scene. So I was like, there, Soho. And he was so shocked. And I remember him trying to explain to me for 10 minutes, like, no one really lives there. Like people go there to go out, but you don't like you're as an Australian, you're, you're going to find this really noisy. <laughs> like you're going to be living above, you know, a cafe, a restaurant, a pub. There's going to be people screaming and fighting after pub kickout time every night. Like there's going to be no trees because everything's really built up. And I was like, no, no, no. Soho baby. And he was like, oh, how can I get this through to you? <laughs> but yeah. I suppose what he could have done was said, that's like trying to live in the Burke Street Mall, Sarah, which is our, you know, Oxford Street. And I would have been like, oh, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, no, that, that doesn't work. London feels like an international city, like everywhere from here to an Australian who, who's used to long, long haul flights. Um, everywhere here feels like a hop, skip and a jump. I can be in New York in under 10 hours. I can be in LA in around 10 hours. You know, Tokyo, yeah, same kind of distance. And then anywhere in Europe in one to two to three to four hours tops, you know. And when you're from such a far-flung country, you can't envisage of a a place where that is true when you come here and it's like all at your fingertips. It's amazing. Right, because I uh, follow you on Instagram and saw that you were recently, you've been in LA, you've been in Ireland as well, uh, posing with various castles and things like that. Yep, I love a castle. I have a hashtag, uh, which is comedians with castles. And now other comedians are getting on board with it. It's a lot of fun. Um, I urge any of your listeners to jump on board that hashtag, comedians with castles. Um, yeah, I do a lot of um, shows abroad. I did stand up in Bucharest, Romania recently. They were awesome. They have like uh, an English speaking stand up scene that is just exploding there right now. So Eastern Europe is an untapped market, but some people are tapping it and they are very canny. So the bookers that are doing shows out there, everything's selling out and you're finding a lot of newer local comics are deciding that this is a potentially valid work choice. So yeah, um, these things wouldn't be available to me if I lived in Australia or somewhere else. Like Europe's just there, you know? Right. And you mentioned that um, you were here for like two years on a work visa, but it's been 17 years. So how, forgive my ignorance, but how were you able to kind of convert beyond two years because I've just gone through the green card process here and um, you know exploring like permanent residency and things like that but I'm actually not sure how it works if you're trying to come into the UK. It's an experience I would never want to live through again. I, I associate changing come sorry I associate changing countries and starting a new life with 
heavy paperwork and heavy expense. It's not just like house, you know, tenancies you're signing or or job contracts you're signing or whatever. It's actual legal paperwork to be in that country. And I was just an independent person without, like my parents weren't able to fund this move. And in fact, they didn't really want me to go. So I had to do this all alone and it was horrifying. Like, so it was a series of bridging visas, um, extension to my previous visa and like appeals. But ultimately the visa that I was going for and ended up getting after many years was um, a de facto leave to remain visa, which is like basically the same as a marriage visa. But if you don't particularly want to get married at that moment in your life, you're not sure you and your partner want to wait a bit longer. If you've lived together, you've cohabited, you can get the same kind of visa. You just have to prove that you've lived together. So it was like collecting water bills and, oh my gosh, internet carrier, uh, internet provider bills for two to four years. I mean, yeah. So you're like in a common law marriage with London, essentially. I am now. Yeah, sure. Exactly. So I get to stay because I've done my time, I pay my taxes, and I'm now on like a leave, in, indefinite leave to remain visa, which is uh, like the next best thing to a British passport. And actually, I've had a few people say to me with the results, the ongoing saga that is Brexit, perhaps I should get my British passport and then I could have dual nationality. And I think I would. The only thing that's stopping me is it's another two grand to four grand. <laughs> and I'd have to give away my Australian passport for a period while they're processing it. And I gig so much in Europe or in Australia or America that I'd need that passport semi-regularly. But, yeah, I think it wouldn't hurt to have an option at border control of a second passport now because we don't know what's going to happen with the queues, the lines at airports going in and out of yeah, it's, I'm not looking forward to it. So what's the what's the mood like? Because I'm reading, you know, in my Guardian app and I'm hearing from friends, but you're there on the ground and particularly living in London. There was obviously that huge march a few yeah. weeks ago. What's the mood like there? I think I speak for everybody. No one's happy. No one is happy. It doesn't matter which way you voted you know, and I don't want to like disparage anyone for, you know, I'm going to be impartial here, but whether you voted remain or the wrong one, then, you know, you, you're not happy. No one's happy. Um, It's not playing out like anyone foresaw, which is, I think, all the more reason for a proper actual referendum. But also I keep thinking like, there are people that say, oh, you know, like just have another referendum. And there's people that say you should be happy with the results of the first referendum, but no one knew what we were voting for when we went into it. Here's a third option. Don't put it to the people at all. Oh, my God. This is too important to let us dummies decide. Like, the EU is a good thing and has been proven to be, you know, it was brought about for, you know, um, I suppose aspirational reasons and, you know, ending war reasons, I suppose, or preventing war reasons and raising the quality of life and the standards for humanity in this region reasons. So don't let us decide because people are bigoted and they have their own agenda. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it just seems very, uh, they keep voting down May's proposals and it just feels like we're just in some sort of stalemate and I can't help but feel the fact that the extension goes until October 31st, a.k.a. Halloween. I know. like literally the EU is, is just joking with us now, I feel. 
Mood is at an all-time low. It's really bad for morale. And if you see it, you get a unique perspective working at a comedy club because every night I do live shows. And if you see the, if you say the capital B word on stage, you see everyone just go, oh, like mood sinks, right? So if you're going to talk about Brexit, you want to have something pretty damn good to say, right? You want to have something, either salient points or something that's so funny or ridiculous that you can bring people out of that low mood, (laughs) that, that funk, you know? Oh, man, I've written a bit of material on on Brexit and it's going okay, but only because I say the word Brexit to preface, you know, in my preface for the material and I hear everyone go, oh, no, she's going to talk about Brexit. And then I'm like, wait, wait. And then I appeal to their better judgment. I'm like, I'm a comic. It is my job to find a silver lining. And don't worry, I found one. And you see their faces kind of go, yay, and smile. Um, right, because I'm sure so many people are turning to comedy right now and mm. Netflix and all these other forms of kind of self-soothing to kind of try and get through this. Absolutely. This challenging time. I went to see some comedy just by happenstance um, the day after the US elections in 2016. And obviously they mentioned Trump and they mentioned Hillary and it was horrifying. But at the same time, it just took me out of the situation for a couple of hours. And that was so valuable. I think so. I think, yeah, like I think... The unique perspective I'm talking about is something you might have noticed in that comedy club as well, is that when you gig like this with different subsections of the community every night, right, you do start to get an idea of zeitgeist, like how people, what broadly people are thinking about specific topics. And you can see a whole room react like in unison, like, oh, or yay, you know what I mean? Like, right. I, um, yeah, I don't know, like. That's something that I've noticed is that Brexit is a sad topic. No one's happy. And a lot is unknown, you know, so we can't really, no one can, the indecision is killing us. What's that a song lyric from? Indecision is killing me. Anyway, that. Someone will Google it and someone will tweet your show and tell you. So this feels like a nice segue from Brexit into what does the idea of migration and freedom to move mean to you? Um, privilege, and maybe it shouldn't be a privilege, maybe it should be a right, but it feels like a privilege because I see other people around the world trying to move for much more valiant reasons than mine and they can't or they're rejected and they're judged because their region they're moving from isn't white or up with immobile or considered safe. They're treated with suspicion and I feel like guilty, I suppose, because my freedom to move was only um, affected by my, you know, my ability to put some money on a credit card or, you know, give Qantas some of my hard-earned temping cash, you know, (laughs) and boom, I'm in the UK. And I I then obviously went through the arduous years-long visa paperwork, um, you know, Uh, journey. I did that. I did it legitimately, but because I was able to, I had like assistance from a partner. I had, you know, I don't know, had impeccable English because I'm an English speaker from an English country that's in the Commonwealth, you know, so it's linked to the UK. And I now have since met people who are refugees or coming from war-torn areas and some moved in a in the way that we speak of as legitimate and some moved through the asylum program, which is 
they just had to get the hell out of there as as well any however they could yeah i i think privilege comes up a lot with guests on this show and i think it's fair to say like a fair few of my guests have been white middle class um i've had a, a lot of british guests and a lot of american guests or you know as you say people coming from first world countries or within the commonwealth it's much easier to move when you look like us and you sound like us and it's it's really depressing to see how um and and how i think as well the 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 general election here and also um brexit in the uk have really exposed a lot of vicious and cruel and outdated um thoughts and stereotypes and and brought a lot of feelings out of the woodwork that i think as a you know as a middle class white liberal i just you know i liked to think didn't exist or at least didn't exist in the numbers that they did um and so to see that now is so tough yeah and it's shocking to see how much people bought into this dumb newspaper narrative like tabloids saying we should leave take our country back blah 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 because net migration from the eu is at its lowest and it's been in decades now but migration for all from all other areas africa wherever has increased so if what you're terrified about is those people coming from those far-flung countries the borders are gone man like yeah you know sure you've lost your you know so that swiss guy you work with has had to go home or the italian lady in your local coffee shop has had to leave and she feels unwanted i have so many european friends working in the uk now that are like screw this man i had no idea you felt like this and i'm like no 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 no, we don't we don't we don't (laughs) yeah but that's the that's how they feel and who can blame them because that is how that war was won was on um, a, a very right-wing agenda. And and we talk about the result being 58-42, and it wasn't because many people didn't turn out to vote. It wasn't a compulsory vote like we have in Australia. It's a legal mandate. You must vote in Australia or you get a $50 fine or whatever it is. But it's not in the UK. And this was called loads of people didn't turn out. It was a pretty low turnout. If we did it again and it was compulsory, you might get a better idea of of actually, I don't know. And I think a lot of people who voted leave anyway are now rethinking it because the terms of whatever they were proposing have totally changed. Yeah, massively so, massively so. Um, Yeah, and I I don't think at this point, I don't think anybody feels smug about the decisions they've they've made. Obviously, some people feel very strongly... um, and stand by what happened at the voting polls, but um, at the voting booths, sorry. But I don't, I don't think anybody is feeling like you said earlier. No one is feeling good about this right now, regardless of what side of the fence they're sat on. Absolutely. And so I think when people come to comedy clubs, they're looking for escapism. If you say the B word, you better be ready that you have something great in your armory. <laughs> <laughs> And so we should probably start wrapping this up now. And you mentioned comedy, um, you're gigging and performing, like you said, across Europe, across the world. Where can people find you? How can they follow your adventures in London and beyond? Uh, I suppose the easiest way to keep up with my wafflings is Twitter, at Sarah Bonetto. It's just Bennett with an O on the end, B-E-N-N-E-T-T-O. Instagram, you'll see photos of me with castles and... 
I guess I announce most of my projects and gigs and podcast appearances and stuff there, but also I enjoy putting dumb jokes up. Sometimes they go viral, sometimes no. But, you know, I do my very best for you guys, the world. Um, that's where you'd find me. Um, I do, like over here in the UK, there's a big music festival circuit and I appear on the comedy stages at music festivals. I appear on podcasts. I actually curate the comedy for a music festival in September in the UK called End of the Road Festival. So I'm right now racing against a deadline, booking my peers and people from all over the world to come and perform stand-up for us at End of the Road. So we'll see. We have a big announcement coming up very soon at EOTR. That's their Twitter handle if you want to check out End of the Road. Wonderful. We'll link that in the episode description as well as your handles. And is there are there any other big projects coming up for you? Um, yes, I have a ooh, potential TV show in development at the moment that is an international treasure hunt. <gasps> what? Um, yeah, that would bring me to the Rocky Mountains. And you'll have one or two listeners, particularly from the States, who at this point will twig what I'm talking about. And everyone else will be like, I have no idea what that's about. But one or two of your listeners will be like, I know about that treasure in the Rocky Mountains. Um, Curious. Yeah, I'm coming over to find it and find it I will. I'm bringing a few of my stand-up comedy friends and TV friends from the UK. And we're going up the mountain um, with the treasure map and a a coded poem that the person who hid the treasure has published. And we're going to find this real actual treasure um, yeah, it's worth two to three million US and it's going to be mine. Oh, mine. Wow. Okay. Well, if you need someone to hold a shovel, a pickaxe, yes, please. you just let me know. <laughs> How are you with drones and metal detectors? I have always wanted to try a metal detector. That sounds like the nerdiest thing I've ever said, actually, but they just look so fun when you're like beachcombing and you just end up finding a Roman coin. I know, right? Seriously, I'll be your metal detector girl. Yes, please. Um, You can be Sarah Gadget Girl. How about that? Love it. You can have all the the drones, the walkie-talkies, the metal detectors. Yes, please. So on board with this. (laughs) So on board with this. Okay, well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on Non-Native. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Non-Native. If you like what you heard, subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at shipshapebf or over on my blog, shipshapeinbristolfashion.com.